This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and today I'm joined by Anne Light, who is in Brighton, I think. Brighton. On the south coast of England. Welcome. Hi, thank you for inviting me. So how has your bubble been going? Well, it's quite an extraordinary experience to have so much time in one place I've been really benefiting from that in many respects because I'm normally somebody who moves around a great deal and it's a long time since I've been kind of pinned to my home in this way and I'm very lucky that the home I'm pinned to is one which I can stand it's it's quite well appointed Um, I'm not living with anybody who's making difficulties for me. So in relative to some people, I know I'm damn lucky. And uh, I have a garden, and that's, I think, perhaps been the major joy. Because you normally commute to Sweden or somewhere. Yes, I've got two jobs, and for part of the year, I would be in Sweden. But that, I'm actually in the part when I would be in Brighton. But that said, I'm quite often in London. I've got projects that take me to Newcastle and other parts actually it's been very peaceful I think when I first began to realize what it would mean I was calling it a kind of quiet pause in a busy life so have you been been able to get out and get exercise you've you've certainly been gardening so you get yes. some sunshine yes and the the British rules or certainly the English rules because we've now discovered that Britain is going in different directions uh, um, with regard to what is and isn't allowed in, under lockdown. The first lockdown rules didn't make it clear that we could um, go out with friends as long as it was socially distanced. I think that's now become clearer. But uh, we've always been allowed to go out and take at least an hour's exercise a day. And I've mostly done that by walking around the neighbourhood and getting to know that better as well. It's strange, isn't it, that... We do get to have been able to, to walk around and notice things that we might not have noticed before. I think it's not just that we're getting out and about and seeing more. I think we're actually able to see different things because wildlife has got braver. I'm seeing far more birds in the garden and squirrels. The foxes are just sitting in the middle of the road. There's little traffic to distress them and no planes overhead. So everything has become a lot more tranquil and not only I think are we aware of that and it's been possible to walk in the middle of the road which is quite useful for social distancing and a lot less human activity. So other birds, animals, 
plants have been taking over. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou na mahi aroha nui, kia koutou kotahuahau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really, really hope that this time of profound journeying that we're all on together and this path that we are taking from level four to level three and now level two is just the most wonderful awakening and illumination for you of how amazing you are, all the things that you can do, all of the ways that you can feel, all of the things that you can be, and all of the ways that you want to be and feel and choose to do and everything. So I hope it's really wonderful for you. And I know for me, I've just had the best day today because, of course, now in level two, we can venture forth and my beautiful partner, Harvey Penfold, and I ventured forth all the way to amazing Ototahi Christchurch and picked up some beautiful bottles specially made there for our Pika Pika bird feeders that are our special cat-resistant native bird feeders. And they sit on a waratah and they can go anywhere. And it's my big dream that everybody will feed our native birds. Because as we say, the more you feed, the more they breed. And that is what we need. We need them all to have lots and lots of babies and be really happy and feel that there's lots of food around and be safe from wonderful cats that we all love. Coexistence in action. So very exciting times. And it was wonderful for me because, of course, I have been largely loving my beloved bubble and staying within my beloved bubble up until this time. And so... Venturing forth was really a revelation for me. And I was just struck by the intense beauty that I was seeing around me. And I hope that it has been like this for you as well. But I was just so moved and so awed by the beauty that I was seeing. And the experience of going to a new place, actually, Timaru, that I haven't spent much time in, even though my beautiful beloved mother was born there. It was really exciting and oh, I just loved it. And although my beautiful mother was born there, my cousin Rimu did some amazing work there. My beautiful beloved manager, Amanda Simon, has run the Tiana Māori Rock Art Centre for the last 20 years there. So I have interacted with the place. It was just a whole new world for me and my beautiful partner, Harvey Penfold. And we wandered around and we looked at all the buildings and we looked at the beautiful plants and the sea and the sculptures and we just loved it and it was so beautiful and we smelt all these beautiful aromas and we found some yummy food to eat and oh, I just had the best time. And I talked to lovely Jeff from his ORFM show, so we just had the best time. And it really struck me, you know, that... I hope for all of you that this has been a time of really amplifying and heightening your appreciation for the beauty around you. And as we know, all of these things that we're seeing, all of the beauty that we're observing 
in the real world, the living world, the natural world, we are a reflection of that beauty. We are part of that beauty. So we are observing the beauty that is ourselves. So it's very powerful and I love it. And I had lots of interesting conversations with beautiful Harvey Penfold about how, you know, some of the buildings that we were seeing, the paint was peeling. And so their beauty we were observing in a different way and it wasn't the same kind of beauty as a shop front where all the it was perfectly presented and all the paint was perfectly in place and its function was very clear it was a presentation whose function had shifted without our consent maybe being given so there was a little bit of a jarring sense of that beauty being presented in a different way and in a way that perhaps was not intentional. So the function of the storefront was less focused on enticing people within and it was more just as a functional space to hold lovely tractor parts inside or whatever the shop was for but some really interesting discussions around how our perception of the function of something may shift our perception of the beauty of something so I've been having really amazing conversations and I've been so grateful and I think for all of us we are learning to appreciate and perceive our own beauty and our own shifting of functions how we can be flexible in this and i hope that you're really enjoying it and i'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow thanks so much kakite so have you been able to carry on working while you've been at home uh, i've been working it's interesting what impact that has because when we were first under when we first began to realize that covid19 was going to be a big deal in britain and i don't know why our leaders were so slow to appreciate it would happen for us too there was a real supply chain problem in britain so we weren't just looking at a condition where we had to suddenly stay in and be mindful and not catch a disease that we didn't know its path but also we suddenly found that we couldn't get access to basics like the kind of food that we might have gone out for and i think that caused quite a lot of um perturbation i mean we were just the things we had to do with our time were different. You had to go to several shops or you had to work out by getting up in the middle of the night how to get an online delivery and, and all those sorts of things. <laughs> Once those things started to smooth back out again, it became easier to work more normally. And I, yes, I'm working 100% and I'm working 100% from home. But I just don't know that I'm working with the same, shall we say, focus that I might be if I didn't have quite so many other things to manage now. And I think it was really interesting how much is involved in self-care when you're under circumstances that you didn't choose like this. I'm finding that there are some things that I'm just thinking, or I'm just, I'm just not getting to. With no excuse, they're just not happening. Well, I think that's probably true for everybody. And I'm being pushed to be very um, zealous in some areas. So I've got two very new research fellows and they're, fantastic i'm so lucky they're such brilliant young women and for me a lot of what i'm doing is trying to make sure that they're getting the support they need to be functional 
and in that I have to be both able to give them things that are meaningful for them to do and make sure that they're doing them well but also make sure that they're not so overloaded with work that they start to implode because it's so much more sensitive at the moment and there are childcare responsibilities and just self-management things we've been talking about where you have to maybe walk more to keep cheerful and lots of different things like that and it's been so wonderful for me because they're both really talented one of them has done a fantastic analysis of how um, the arts have been impacted by COVID-19 and we've been particularly looking on one project at the way that art has been able to trigger environmental change and trigger kind of cultural change and that project had only really just begun and we've already had to look at what's happened to the arts groups and the transformations within the arts groups so we're looking at transformative futures but we'd assumed that it was other people's futures rather than the groups themselves and that's really had to change in the course of the last few weeks so she's done a really fine piece of analysis into what's happening to the arts organizations and what their support needs will be and the other has done an exemplary piece not within the scope of the project particularly she's just done a wonderful piece of work on looking at how one supports artists going digital so that they can find ways of continuing their work and realizing an income stream when all the outlets galleries and theaters and so on are shut they're in an interesting position of being definitely not essential but certainly missed it depends on what you consider essential. I mean, one of the things we've noted is how far the um, arts and, and culture has been one of the things people have turned to in lockdown to keep themselves sane and to communicate with other people and, and to share in things. So I think it, we can see them as peripheral in some ways, but it's been really interesting how much people have turned to that and how much discussion there is then about things that people have caught and supporting those kinds of networks so that's one thing but i think also because we were particularly looking at those groups that are very socially engaged they're working within their communities to organize different types of um activity you know things like swap shops and and kind of a action that were designed to rethink the future of a park or protect it. Lots of different things that might not be traditionally seen as art. So we were not so much worrying about whether there's a display on a, a particular gallery, but much more about how these were working with communities. And one of the things that's been very difficult for them, and I think has upset a lot of the groups, is that a lot of the more vulnerable people that they were reaching cannot be reached online in the same way as they can be reached in their communities. So the neighbourhood thing is really foregrounded in the work that we've been doing. And yes, I think that that's been changed by what's happened. But the ingenuity that the groups have been showing about bringing people in and making things happen, the conversations that they're having, just fantastic. One of the things that we keep hearing is that all around the world, people are recognising, but also celebrating the the resurgence of community and that's been almost perverse because community is the thing which we're not able to do in a traditional sense i completely agree with both those both the resurgence and also the tensions but i think what's interesting is that kind of mixture of online and offline that's becoming maybe central to that kind of care so this week somebody popped up on the neighborhood Facebook page that we have 
And she said, well, I'm not trying to sell anything, but I just wanted to find out, you know, kind of if, if anyone would come and talk to me because I'm on the third floor, I can't get out easily and I'm getting really lonely. And there was this outpouring of people kind of saying, look, you know, come and wave, we'll come and stand downstairs or if you can get downstairs and just sit on your doorstep, we're going to come by. And people already dropped off some CDs for her and 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 we know that you know one of the first things that happened locally was people organized on facebook a drop of postcards through people's doors to say if you have any needs these are who you can get in touch with these are the phone numbers so you didn't rely on being online there was an, a really good use of the online to support the offline it's been amazing i've been really touched by it one of their fields is in fact social innovation do you think that those things that people are doing different communities some of them go they go viral but it doesn't matter if they they don't during the the strongest bits of lockdown we all had teddy bears in our windows i think that was something that was um developed somewhere and different communities have um people playing the bagpipes on the roof or whatever it might be <laughs> i do you think that those things are, uh, you know, how important are those sorts of things? One of the things that's been going on in Britain is the clapping for carers. And I think initially that was hugely important for the carers themselves to make them, make them feel valued. And it has interestingly developed a kind of political wing because I think it's people were very aware of how um, important the health service and the people working in it and all the other frontline staff have been but the tension has been now between people who want to continue to clap and actually a pushback from some of the from some of the frontline nhs staff for instance um because it's very apparent in britain that there's a shortage of protective clothing protective gear in the health service and so there's been a, a kind of tension in that people are starting to say no don't just clap for us demand that we have protective care because that's what we actually need and that has carried through so it's quite interesting how the there's been this sort of tension between things that are just to show care and then how that can tip into a bigger movement for something even more significant in this case because we have got people dying because they're on the front line without adequate care Paul and the gang, celebration right there.
So of all of the things that you've seen at a societal level in the last couple of months, it's getting longer, isn't it? What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? One of the things that's definitely going to stick are the relationships that are being built now. And I'm hoping that some of the relationship building activities will also stick. It feels there's been a huge sea change about how we understand community and what we need from each other. It's very easy if you live in a highly westernised society where an awful lot is provided and a a lot can be very individualist. You can just go and do things. I think we've all been reminded how much we need each other. But also a number of the kind of mechanisms that have developed for people to support each other have also revealed how little things matter in this respect. I mean, one of the things that we'd love to see locally are far more road closures because... We haven't really missed the traffic and it would be perfectly possible for kind of emergency cars that need to drive around to go 
goes through our area, but also just everybody else to think twice before they actually get into a vehicle, because that's what's been happening lately. And one concern is that this will be completely overridden by the fact that now we've been told to go back to work, but to go back without using public transport where we can, in effect. So it's actually been an invitation to use walking, to use bikes, but also to use cars. And I think those sorts of things may may lose this very recent memory of how lovely it's been to have this level of peace and this level of, of, of engagement without having to resort to, to cars. But a number of people who are saying to me, I don't want to go back to the hectic lifestyle that I was leading. I could imagine working from home a lot more. I think that that's been a, a change too. And if that's going to happen, then what are the mechanisms? Like we've got a visiting coffee van that just comes and parks up for morning in our area. And people know that other people will be going to get coffee at that time. So it becomes almost like the water cooler moment at work where everyone can gather and exchange what's been going on. So I think a lot of those smaller things might well happen. And then it's a question of whether we can get our councils and our uh, bigger carers, our politicians, to, to see how good some of this stuff has been and to do it in a way that's constructive rather than just cost-cutting. One of the things that the sustainability movement has been fighting for a long time is that accusation that oh, you want us to go back to the caves. Do we want to give up on all of this stuff? And the, the response has always been we're not going for a lesser life, we're going for a better life, and nobody's believed us. Yeah. And re recognising it in this case, there are drivers and there are people that are vulnerable and, and, and there is you know, there is certainly a big dose of bad stuff going on. But for those of us that are directly, not directly affected by that, it has been pretty good. Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge a huge class dimension to that and the pressure in going back to work is different for different people I mean I never left work and I've been doing it from home much as I might have been doing it if I hadn't had teaching which would have normally brought me in I think even just my ability to look after the students is less from here than it would be if I were actually seeing them and having a face-to-face -face meeting with them so I think there are things that could be squeezed out which would be very unhelpful and I also recognise that, as I said at the beginning, I'm really lucky about my circumstances. I mean, I get I get a sense of aloneness and, and loneliness some of the time because I'm just here by myself and that that's, can be hard. But I think I've also had the chance to use that time to think about my life and myself in different ways. So it's been really constructive in other respects. But for people who are just living in cramped environment and who perhaps don't know where the next you know, sort of shillings are coming from. I think we have to be really careful because if we have a huge downturn in the economy, that particularly in a country like Britain, which is so unequal, we will really feel it. So while I, I want to be absolutely positive about some of the good changes that have been made, it has to be followed up in a way that doesn't just mean a, a downturn in some people's living conditions. And I'm happy to work for that. I think a number of people would be happy for, to work for that. It's a sense now perhaps that, that the real divisions are between the people who have and the people who don't have, and that's changed as we understand what loneliness looks like, as we understand what really keeps you safe and well. And that those changes and that reprioritization it must be hugely important to what happens next in Britain and the world, I hope. But 
we also just have to be mindful that there needs to be a political follow through on this as well. Yeah, here in New Zealand, where we seem to have managed to to pull off the the miracle of dodging the the COVID thing, they're still saying that that because we're of course going into winter, is that this is going to be a long winter. Yeah. What do you think that we that can do to 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 move it to a a regeneration to a, a thriving over the next six months a year? What what would we need to put in place now to make it better for not just for us but for for others, those more people more vulnerable? Well, one thing is, and this probably doesn't apply to New Zealand, where I think you've got the best leadership in the world, and there are one or two other countries perhaps giving you a run for your money. I think Portugal and Iceland are doing pretty well, but it's very um, selective. And one thing we might do is encourage people who've got um, an election coming up to vote for a caring leader because it's showing the difference now. I think it really is that we cannot just have people who care about the economy. We have to have people who are prepared to step in when there's a crisis. I think we all feel that crises are likely to become more frequent with the changes that climate change and other things are bringing in, that we've had a very lucky run in certain parts of the world. Um, New Zealand's had its experiences with earthquakes and so on in the recent past that make those kinds of sensitivity is more more real but i think for a lot of countries that have just had it relatively easy covid19 has been a a big wake-up call to the value of care so i think i can't ignore the big picture and how important it will be to 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 care at that level as well as at the local level and then i would hope that a lot of the things that we've got now we continue and amplify and work out how to share I think one of the great things about the online world is that it allows people to learn from each other. So I know that the clapping for carers started with one person suggesting it. And then, you know, between newspapers and social media, it went viral. And it is now a moment when people stand on their doorsteps and see each other. And if nothing else, that has its value. Everything can spread like that. We've talked a lot in my communities of, of, of work communities about the notion of proliferation. It doesn't have to be the same everywhere, but how do we share the ideas that could take hold in different places and become meaningful? And how would they become meaningful in different places because the conditions are different? And understanding that and those mechanisms, I think that would help us. So that's one of the areas that I'm really concerned to work in at the moment. Proliferation of kindness sounds like a good idea. It would not hurt. It was interesting that in the the well-being budget, which is what our government did, whenever it was last year, and and, and that was very much a, a big moment for those of us that are uh, uh, nerdy about these sorts of things. About the, you know, we're not just governing on the basis of the GDP. We're based on the we're governing on the basis of social justice and the environment and all that. It all comes together. And you kind of got the feeling is, yeah, whatever, show us the money. But now I think that one of the outcomes from this is that it's really shown that decision making policy can be made on the basis of kindness. As I say, you've got an exemplary leader. And one of the things we could all learn from, I think, is actually how she's been leading, because it 
it hasn't necessarily been fiscal. I mean, yes, they're, they're support packages, but how much better if you don't need them? And a lot of that's been handled by doing things which are very clear, very assertive, very timely, brave in the face of what other people have resisted doing. And, and done, as you say, with kindness and a thought beyond the political ramifications for the individual. One of the problems we've got, I think, with leadership is that a lot of it is very self-interested and invested in particular concerns. And at the moment, that's not winning any friends. And it's interesting, we're seeing a, a move away from the kind of magical leaders that, are being, that were appointed in the last few years towards perhaps more traditional values for leadership now, because we're starting to see that countries where there's been a, a unity and they've consulted everybody, talked sensibly to people that they might not sit down with like trade unions, those countries are faring so much better in terms of lives. And then you have to ask, what do the laissez-faire countries have in common? And at the moment, it's all a high death count. And you think, well, that's not random. That's because there's a different model applied here, which just doesn't value human life as highly. So really esteem the countries which are coming out now as the countries that are valuing life highly and thinking through what will make it bearable for people. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller urban explorer and conversationalist, observing city life in lockdown. Hello there, bubble people. Hope you're all doing well. It's Liesl here, uh, having a chat with you from my lovely spot above the urban jungle sprawl that is Dunedin. Um, <laughs> I hope you're all enjoying this level two experience of being out and about and uh, still being thoughtful, still being kind, but um, reveling a little in all this humanity that we're experiencing again. Isn't it weird? It's sort of weird and interesting. I was talking to someone the other day about we need a new word for weird because, um, well, maybe we need more words than just weird because um, this experience has created a lot of weirdness and it's like we need shades of of weirdness to be able to describe I guess so we need new words so if you've got some good words out there or have made up a, a word recently that seems to fit with what we're experiencing then do share because I'm I'm struggling I need I need more words than just weird but yeah it is a little bit there we go weird <laughs> just kind of coming to terms with this new normal this new way of way of being so yeah, I hope you're doing okay. I uh, I had some really lovely experiences in the last few days that were um, actually linked to the photos that I took during lockdown, and I'm still I'm still taking, and uh, just not posting on my Facebook page quite as quite as uh, vigilantly as I guess I was over over the lockdown period. But every morning I try to take some photos of the sunrise or something like a sunrise if if there is no sunrise. Um, and just you know share that with people that want to want to have a look at my photos on Facebook and um, I ran into a friend and they said to me oh wow thank you for your photos because um, I haven't seen this friend since the beginning of lockdown and uh, they just said thank you so much for your photos I looked forward to them every morning they were something that was kind of a constant during lockdown 
and um, when you couldn't get out and see things because you were sort of in your own little lockdown bubble um, it was so lovely to see the pictures you were taking and uh, and yeah thank you thank you for doing that and I was really touched by that because while I knew that my friends were you know looking at my photos and there was lovely comments and you know likes and hearts that always make you feel good don't they on Facebook <laughs> for your photos but um, you know obviously people were interacting with them and seeing them but I you don't know you don't know what kind of um, actual effect that's having and to act to to have this conversation with with my friend and uh, for them to just say that that was an important thing or it was a it was something they had enjoyed and valued um, really touched me and I you know I really I think sometimes we just don't realize do we like um, how our actions how our what we do impact upon others whether that's good or bad like <laughs> we just don't know how we're reaching people sometimes and um, and I actually had another thing happen with um, someone that I've I've known for a really long time but you know we don't catch up very often and I'd say they're one of my acquaintances more than a friend as such but they sent me um, a little note just with a photo attached to it of, of a view that they'd taken saying hey I've loved your photos uh, over the last few weeks and just was out out for a walk today and took this photo and thought I'd send it to you because uh, it was a beautiful view and I thought wow like how lovely is that so you know you reach people when you don't even know you're reaching people and it's so lovely when people actually reach back and let you know that you've reached them because you don't know do you so um, actually getting both those people coming back to me and it, for me it's not about the photos it's about the fact that um, that you've somehow connected with people and in that time when you were bubbled up and and still you know we're, we're keeping our distance from each other in some ways being able to reach people uh, we've got that capacity and it's really important to try to reach out in positive ways it really really impacts in an important way so yeah I felt pretty good uh, with both of those sort of that feedback I guess and that that loop of connection so I hope you're having a fantastic day continue to have one um, do what you can to be good to yourself and others and take care talk soon in terms of us designing our future society and our future responses what do you think we can learn from this for the perhaps bigger questions of climate change, social justice, um, biodiversity, about how we can respond and how we can act? One of the things when we think about climate change, social justice and so on is that they seem like very big topics, but actually they all break down into day-to-day -day instances of how we treat each other and what's available to, to people to, to do. And the learning I've been seeing is that people have behaved really very rationally and often very kindly in different crises, depending on what your country was doing or what your particular area afforded. And understanding those responses, so that we've just had these examples of people doing things well beyond what's been asked of them and also behaving perhaps quite selfishly and erratically because of what's been thrust at them. 
but never really illogically. And understanding how those decisions were motivated and, and what could be offered to people so that their best selves is, are able to come out. I think that would be the thing because everybody has experienced some degree of, of fright. And it's been a world fright. And people now are you know, sort of saying, oh, you know, fright has been used as a, as a weapon. We've been scared into staying home. So there's a lobby now who thinks that we're being heavily manipulated. And there is a danger that the isolation will lead to a lack of political action, which would be desperate at this point, because we so need to do about so many things like the things we've just been talking about. But I think that there is also so much that we can learn from this moment about what we can take forward and in understanding people's reactions. You know, I was having a discussion recently about why people rushed out to buy toilet paper because it became this big joke. But if you look at what was happening once you realised that you weren't quite sure where something was going to come from, it was only something like a 10% change in consumer activity and all the just-in-time buying that all our shops function through had, had made us vulnerable. You know, suddenly we couldn't find one... One day it would be you couldn't find any canned goods. Another day you couldn't find any fresh goods. Just depended what particular surge had gone on. And it wasn't actually that people were hoarding or stockpiling as it was being presented. They were merely buying for a couple of weeks instead of a week because they didn't want to go and expose themselves to risk as much as shopping was requiring. So completely logical behavior. And if you can unpick that in a way that doesn't just kind of demonize certain behaviors but understands it, then I think we can design for things that make us less vulnerable and make us safer, but in a positive collective way rather than safety by, by isolating ourselves or cutting ourselves off from people. And even if we have to physically, I mean, it's unfortunate that something's been called social distancing here. And we're talking about it much more as physical distancing because the point is that we're keeping our bodies apart from each other, but we're not keeping apart from each other. I think we're proving at the moment that we're very much together and very much doing things in a spirit of solidarity in a way that perhaps wasn't seen even a few months ago. And that that notion that it's probably not going to affect most people in a significant way, but you need to do this to keep you, you know, you're doing this for your nan. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we can learn something about how that was communicated because it's not many steps from that to the you're doing it for the intergenerational other, you're doing it for people in the other countries, you're doing it for for for, for non-human people. So, so, so maybe we can pull on that, um, that well, response. When, uh, many years ago, when I was a young lass, um, Britain had a very good social security system where people paid in because they got out. And they didn't necessarily pay in for themselves. They paid in for the common wheel so that other people could take out. And it's very interesting how rhetoric has really changed around that. You pay it only for yourself and you should expect certain things back. It's not cost effective to pay into it because you're not getting it back and the state should be smaller. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, I also work in Sweden where the state is still employing one in three people and it's much, much bigger in its ambitions and its, its support for people and they pay very high taxes and they don't on the whole begrudge them although it is interesting to see how attitudes change there too but they're changing a lot more slowly than they have in Britain and I've watched 
the post-war generation morph into something much more relaxed about about mutual care and it'd be really i think one of the best things that we could take from it without wishing to invoke the blitz spirit which has been done a little bit too much i think and has also been linked to kind of plucky plucky england when actually i don't think we're being particularly plucky i think if anything we're being damn stupid at times as a collective not as a not as a particular individuals so we've just got to find a way of getting that sense of mutual care to apply to people in a sweatshop in cambodia or an an ugly worm yeah i think so and one of the challenges is when you feel that resources are being completed for people get less generous in that way what's been amazing at the moment is that it's been foregrounding just just simple life at its most basic and just caring for people and caring that they're alive as opposed to what we actually you know and going back to what we need not even to flourish although ideally we'd look at what what is needed to flourish rather than just the things that we might like to have and having those things pitted against others as if it was a competition another thing it's uh, foregrounded is the we were talking about before the the perhaps the veneer of the the systems that we are operating that we only needed that small change in demand and the 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 um the supply chains couldn't cope with for some things but i mean they they got back but for a while those things were looking quite shaky and it's i think it's highlighted you know if we just look at things like the 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 manufacture of masks i know that's been an issue in in um in your country you know why can't we do this stuff ourselves why can't we produce ventilators because we've lost that ability to do that sort of thing. Oh, but I mean, it was slightly worse in Britain because we were producing the protective equipment. We were just selling it to other countries. That seems to be a broken system. It was a system that wasn't flexible when, when the flex was needed. But I, I agree that there are some lessons at a systems level that we could learn about how we can deliver the things we need about a political accords as well, because one of the things was about who offered what and why there were barriers to taking it. I mean, if you look at it closely, there was a lot of advice that came from Asia that nobody would listen to because it was Asian. And you're kind of like, well, that's just weird and unhelpful because they've had much more experience of dealing with um, respiratory diseases of this kind than we have. There was a reluctance to work with our European neighbours because we were trying to leave Europe. So, I mean, if we just look at the instance of how pig-headed Britain has been at a government level, as I say, that's not been our finest moment. The best thing that's been happening is what people have been able to do at local level where people are, for instance, making masks for themselves and making masks for other people. And all my area, I mean, we've had so many calls for spare um, materials of a certain kind that can be turned into protective clothing. So it's clear that, you know, a cottage industry has sprung up in making protective clothing for the um, workers who don't have it, who should have it. Um, ideally, we wouldn't have to be dealing with it ourselves like that in such an ad hoc way. Either we would be dealing with it ourselves and well-organised to do so, 
or it would have been sanctioned better at state level. But given that absence, I think people have been fantastic. So I have some questions to end with and enough time to get through them, if we're quick. Right. You've had them before, but I'm going to ask them anyway. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? My biggest my biggest success? Yes, yours. I think I would say that's, that's changed since I spoke to you a year ago because I'd say just getting to work with two such fantastic research fellows who are changing the face of um, our understanding of these issues and who've been able to rise to the occasion. It's been fantastic. It's been such a privilege. So, as you know, we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. So you're in our mansion of people doing good work. What's the superpower that got you there? I 
I get stuck there, don't I? Um, let's say bloody-mindedness. I've been saying that it's really important that we think about cultural change and that we turn to arts organisations to promote cultural change for a very long time. And now we've even got some European money to research it, which I also didn't have at the time when I spoke to you last. And boy, we're going to have such a good time doing it and we're going to learn so much. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Yes. Why is that? Because there's so much that needs changing. <laughs> so what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? How much needs changing? You're not allowed to answer this question with the same answer, though it could be. Uh, what, challenge are you what challenge are you looking forward to in the next couple of years? Using some of what we've been learning over the last few weeks and trying to em embed it so that it doesn't just become a fly-by-night phenomenon where we forget what care looked like. That's a great challenge. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Get out there and be excellent to each other. I know you're already doing it, but things will start to open up a bit more and it won't necessarily be as smooth as we would like it to be. And we are there for each other. Make the best use of that. Thank you for that. Thank you very much for joining me. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles. Positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us in all the poddy sorts of places. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I've been joined by Anne Light in Brighton on the south coast of England and Sussex. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.